This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. season is brought to you by your host Julia and Jacqueline and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. The startup ecosystem has seen many software startups over the last years, but how about a software startup that aims to ease the development of new electronic hardware products? Our guest in today's episode, Sebastian Schall, is diving into exactly this area. He is the founder of Luminovo, a company that speeds up the process of electronic hardware development, leveraging software and machine learning. Sebastian studied electrical engineering at TUM and holds a master's in management science and engineering from Stanford University. He is also a CDTM alum. Although he and his co-founder Timon met at Stanford, they intentionally chose Munich over Silicon Valley to found Luminovo after their time in the US. Apart from Sebastian's exciting personality, There is a great occasion for this episode. Recently, Luminovo raised 11 million seed financing, an impressive round in the current market situation. Back in 2017, when Luminovo was founded, it was quite a different business model. Luminovo originated as an AI boutique consultancy before transitioning to a B2B SaaS model in early 2020. The impressive round doesn't come as a surprise, as Luminovo is solving a very pressing pain point in the electronic production industry. To produce electronics, many manufacturers and designers still use Excel spreadsheets or outdated communication tools. This results in longer time to market and inefficient iteration cycles. To solve this, Luminovo has developed a unified data model and modular software suite to streamline and democratize the electronics development process in order to reduce time to market and increase revenue, productivity, and profitability. The problem Luminova is tackling is even more present given the current electronic supply chain crisis. Since 2020, projections regarding electronics manufacturing have been murky, leading to delays, costly redesigns, and even product cancellations. Luminova is on a mission to have a lasting positive impact on the industry with its AI-powered software. Over the course of the episode, we will hear more about Sebastian's journey and also which role the different stations played. We will get to know more about Luminovo, their recent funding round, and what it means to be a founder in your first full-time job. Then we will also get a glimpse of what the future of Luminovo and the electronic manufacturing industry can look like. And finally, as Sebastian is an AI enthusiast, we will talk about how AI implementation has changed in Germany during the last five years and what we can still learn from Silicon Valley. To finish out the podcast, we are also thrilled to add Sebastian's personal toolbox to our resources for the innovators of tomorrow. Hello, Sebastian. Very happy to have you today with us on Mostly Awesome Podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Let's start from the very, very beginning. We at CDTM know you as a techie. Do you remember when you started to develop a passion for tech? It's a very good question. I think when I look back at these first kind of yearbooks that you have as a kid that you're circling around in pre-elementary school, my first job wish was always to be an inventor because my childhood hero was Gairo Gielu, so from the 
in the comic setup. And I think that was probably already a good early sign that I'm like an inventor trying to build with crazy machines. So I guess that was already the origin very much of my childhood. And I can see how that would have been something that would draw your passion for tech. And that seems to be something that just sort of went throughout your life and career trajectory. And just reading up on you and your background, your time at Stanford seems to have also been a pretty pivotal moment in your career. How did you decide to do your master's at Stanford? And what did you take out of the experience? Yeah, so I did in my undergrad studies, I already went to the US one more time to the University of Minnesota, which was, I think, the third largest college in the States. And that was very much for the American college experience. And after that, I had the dream that I want to go to the US one more time, but then really for an academic experience and try to go to one of the best schools that you can find in the US. Also, the confidence that this is possible is something that was definitely also sparked at CDTM, where I met a lot of people that also have done this stuff before, that have went abroad to the States, and where you could just have a chat about it. And that was basically, for me, besides my electrical engineering studies, I did the, the CDTM program, basically with my first step into a, a tech and business direction. And in my mind, this would, would have been the best opportunity to do a second master or like program in the States where I can then continue on this CDTM management and technology journey and do a program that basically is a successor to that. Regarding your time at Stanford, I think you once said that it was normal to work till 2 a.m. on cool project together with cool people. And I'm sure that Stanford is a high achieving environment. And I wanted to ask you whether you felt an overachieving pressure at Stanford and whether you changed your working style since then? I think when I first got to Stanford, the first thing was that I experienced more of a leveling experience that I think at, at university at home, I, at, at a certain point after I got to a level where I knew, okay, if I really put a lot of pressure in, I can probably be at one of the best people in a certain exam. And at Stanford, for the first time, I, you know, I felt I got there and then I felt, oh, there's a lot of people that have done very incredible things before and are very passionate and driven. And it felt more that you like working with peers and it was, I think, more of a kind of a liberating experience that you kind of, it's not, you don't have to try to always be the best, but try to just give your best. And I think that was rather like a positive for a spark with me than like a burden on the shoulder. And I think what I took away most is because we were working so closely on very cutting edge technology, AI at the time, and you felt that you're so close to research innovation and not everything is scripted in a book and there's not everything that someone else already knows at all. And that you can just learn everything if you really just try to read up on yourself, you know where who to ask and where to look for. So for me, it was more this, this mindset shift of uh, you can learn everything if you're just working for it. For me, it wasn't really a pressure, but more a learning by doing is really what gets you uh, to most of the things. And even, even at Stanford, if you if I give you all your best, then you can also be one of the best students there if you just put the effort in. It's very interesting that you say it was a liberating thought seeing so many other talented people and knowing that you're not the best and does not give you additional pressure. So you would say that you didn't feel any, any, any FOMO in this high achieving environment. I'm asking because today at CDTM, we try to be very conscious about working and living in high achieving environment and how it affects our mental state and mental well-being. Uh, that's why I'm very curious about what you think. 
CDTM was the first time where you always felt, hey, everyone at CDTM is kind of a little bit is smarter than me. This was the first time that really appeared to me. But I think it, what happens there is that you're trying to build up that Uber student that doesn't really exist, right? You take fragments of different people and just create this persona that doesn't really exist and compare yourself against that. And I think once you realize that and focus on your strength and what you're good at and also what you're passionate about and not limiting yourself on, I'm just good if I achieve a certain grade, but like see yourself as a full personality with many different talents. I think then this is like a healthy track for everyone else. And I think that's a similar situation there. Also in the US at Stanford, you find people, you can always create that one crazy student that has scored every exam, but then they found their startup when they were 17. But mostly these are very different people. And I think the same concept applies there as it does here. And if you're conscious with that, then I think uh, you, sh you shouldn't fall into this um, trauma that you have to work even harder, even more. Otherwise, you're burning out more quickly than you can look. Those sound like really profound learnings and really just like wise things to learn from a master's program. Also, Julia and I came across an article that called you a Stanford nerd coming back from Germany. And I actually grew up like 20 minutes away from Stanford. So I've been to Stanford, been to the campus, experienced all the weather. And so I was just curious, how did you decide to come back to Germany? And why exactly did you decide to come back? So for me, I went to Stanford on a Fulbright scholarship. So that basically entails a little bit of the idea that you are bringing this cultural exchange program. So you bring basically your German attitude and your hobbies and your whatever over there, you experience it, you bring it in there and you experience the culture there and then you bring it back home. So there's normally like a, a residence requirement that you can, yeah, you can like continue your program there, you can work there, but at some point the idea is that you come back for a certain period of time. So that was why it was always in the back of my mind that to live up to that grant, it would be part of really going full circle and, and coming back. That's like one thing. I think the, the Valley is a very interesting place for you to continue your academic career and start your professional career. I think you do two years in big tech, what many of my classmates did, you can't really go wrong. But I think when you look up, you really see how the kind of kids are raised there in that environment. I mean, Munich, I think is a very special place where there's so little crime and you feel so safe wherever you go. And if you have ever walked into East Palo Alto, I think it's a very different story. I've seen many people then, once they have a family, Europeans that started their professional career there, and once they're thinking about family, they're coming back to Europe because they feel it's like a more welcoming environment for a young family. So it's kind of clear that like, you know, it's not the whole holy grail in for every part of your life. I think that's one thing. But for me specifically it was then, okay, I want to go back. This idea of an entrepreneurial career, which was like a spark at CDTM, of course, was fueled in the valley. And then I felt, okay, this is really a potential choice I could do. I felt if there's an environment where I have a lot of connections to start an entrepreneurial career, then Munich is the place for me to go. And I think in addition to this was also this idea of, hey, the skills that I was able to pick up in the valley in that time, specifically this kind of edge about machine learning and artificial intelligence in a broader sense is something that I could do bring to good use here and could be a little bit more of an expert than you could have been in the Valley where they all took the same machine learning class. 
Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is actually a very full circle moment for me because I'm actually in Munich on a Fulbright. So we've kind of completed the perfect exchange. It's really cool also to hear how your time at Stanford kind of intertwines with your time at CDTM. And we just wanted to highlight most of the people in CDTM know you're still active in the community and I believe give workshops to students from time to time. How and why did you decide to make time for such sessions, especially as we imagine you're very busy? When I started CDTM, I was always curious how this concept even works, right? You only have a little bit of money and the center assistants who are trying to run the show, and then you have all these high quality lecturers. And then you realize, wow, okay, they all have an affiliation to the program. They're all alumni. And I asked myself at that time exactly the same question. Why are these people coming back? Now I'm at the same position. And I think the answer is pretty easy that if you look back in what are the forks in the road in your professional career where you were fortunate enough to take the right turn or someone decided for you that this is even a possibility and you know that for me CDTM is definitely one of the most pivotal moments, then you know, okay, there is, you have a lot to give back to that opportunity, to that program that probably brought you all the way to where you're at right now. I will always be connected to the center for giving me the opportunities it gave me. And that's why I'm always super happy to just come back and people consider what everything I have to say is sensible for their curriculum and happy to engage. And of course, the second part is always when you're like running your own startup and you know that there are very smart people here, then of course, it's always important to be on the radar for future talent. So I won't lie if that is not also part of the agenda. Given back is one of the biggest values of, of CDTM, and it's very inspiring to see how alumni just leave this value after leaving the center, but still being active in the community. Can you maybe reflect on how CDTM else changed your career path or what else did you learn in terms of your personal values, your professional values at CDTM? So I think when I started at CDTM, I thought I was a broadly interested electrical engineer. That was my personal perception at the time. And when I started here, I realized how little I know about other fields, potential other career trajectories. That I think was for me the most interesting learning that all these different future selves of yourself are now in one room. That if you're broadly interested, then you could probably see yourself in many different paths in the future. And now out of a sudden, it's like up for grabs. You can talk to the people that have done a consulting internship or did something in research or worked at an NGO, out of a sudden they're all there and you can just have a kind of conversation with them. And I think that was for me, like the most important, this like sea of opportunities that out of a sudden was there that I this, widened my scope of thinking, which of course can also be very overwhelming at times. So I think that's the flip side of the coin. But I think that was definitely the, the most pivotal thing. And then of course, for me, this was, I then said, hey, consulting could be interesting. I did an internship there. And I'm also pretty sure that having that on my CV was definitely also one of the factors that got me accepted at Stanford. And then the journey at Stanford brought me to my entrepreneurial journey here. So in a sense, in hindsight, it's a very clear like chain of events. Very lucky chain, chain of events. 100%. 100%. <laughs> Moving on to speak more about Luminova itself, I think all of us are interested in the beginning of how the company started. And we also read that Timon and you met in Stanford. 
Do you remember how it was? And did you know from the beginning that you wanted to found together? So we, the first time we saw each other was actually still in Germany because he was also on a Fulbright and we met at this pre-kickoff meeting still in Berlin. But then we started to spend our time together with the international community and even started living together for two quarters. And I definitely very quickly developed a close friendship with him. We also quickly learned that we could organize events together because we kind of got known of throwing like VG parties. So we basically tried to bring this concept of like a fat party to the Americans and organizing this stuff was always very fun. So we knew that we can get along personally very well and that we can plan some events together. But then I think also knowing mostly not from really working together personally, but knowing from other people that work together with the other party, knowing that they are also great team players and can probably bring a lot of skills to the table, warmed up this, this idea. And I think then for us, it was really like a continuous conversation about what we want to do in the future. And uh, yeah, I think we we'll always describe this weird moment when you have a personal connection and you could consider yourself working with this other party, but you don't know the answer of the other side. And it's a little bit like for maybe first move in dating, but in that case, you feel that if you're opening up now and the other party sees it completely different, uh, you might kind of tamper with that friendship. But luckily, both of us felt that this could be a journey that we can take on together. And that's why we're here, where we're today. Yeah, I think there is a saying that founding a company together is more serious than a relationship or marriage or closing a first relationship with your VC. I think uh, there is some truth in, in these words. From working together to plan dorm parties to founding together, there seems to be quite a scale of complexity there. And particularly talking about Luminovo, I think for non-tech people, Luminovo seems to be quite a complex solution. Do you remember between you and Timon, what was the problem that you identified first? And why did you decide to start as more of a consultancy? So when we started out brainstorming about ideas, we had like a few fixed points in mind. We knew we wanted to do something in B2B because I would feel that I'm sometimes not understanding my own behaviors that well. So how could I do it for multiple other users? But also that we felt that there's like more lever to pull when it comes to value adding industries. We felt that some industries are just by design more redistributing value and not really creating value. And these, I think, were two poker points of B2B value creating industry. And then we wanted to build like a product company with AI first, AI at the core. And on our journey, I think what we found was that there are cool product ideas, but they would, they would only use machine learning like maybe two and a half years down the line. But there were also a lot of interesting machine learning problems for different companies to solve, but they were not really productizable. So we basically couldn't have it all at the time. And then the, our urge of really getting our hands dirty with machine learning in the wild was, was at the time larger than going for a product company. And that's why we felt, okay, that's probably the route for us to go. That's one way to think about it. But also on the other way is that I think our biggest asset at the time as founders was basically this, I would say one and a half year academic edge versus like a Tum fresh graduate and a Stanford fresh graduate. And so that we felt that's basically the, the asset we currently have and kind of also the justification of just founding a company out of the blue without really having a good idea. 
that we say, hey, this is an expertise we think we can bring now and where we can add value to companies. And maybe let's just run with that and see where it brings us. So looking at the history of Luminovo, I think the company has been around for more than four years already. And you started as a deep learning agency. Now you are pure B2B SaaS product. Do you remember if there was a time in the history of your company when you stopped believing in your idea for a moment, or maybe you even wanted to give up? So I think the toughest part of that whole journey was really that transition phase. It was basically in the summer 2019, so one and a half years in, where we said, hey, we really, really feel that our kind of learning curve is flattening as a company. We were never really a great agency or consultancy because we were always deciding to go for the next most interesting project, maybe not the next most profitable project. So it was basically by design, not a great business model for us. So we said, hey, we really need a mission 2020. We really want to go into the next year, not just knowing that we're going to do another year of agency work, but we want to build towards a product company. And at that time, our thinking was, well, there's three different projects we've done with different clients where we kind of kept the IP either completely or partially. So maybe let's think all of them in a bigger context, which of them could be the product company for us in the future, but we just already had expertise on the ground. And then we said, hey, these three ideas, let's funnel them down. We'll do by elimination. At the end of the year, we'll have one idea and that's going to be it. So far, so good. And then it was the beginning of November where we sat there and it was like basically these three ideas. And we wanted to say, hey, what, which two make it to the next round? And we like looked each other in the eye with like the whole team. And it was clear at that moment, it's none of those three. And then it was this moment where we said, okay, you felt there's so much energy leaving the room and we had to kind of rattle ourselves again, zoom out again and do another, okay, discovery and then funneling it down again to one idea that we could choose. And at that moment, it was like, wow, this was such a huge effort to get that energy up again for that second phase. And I just, we just knew that if we won't converge, on this one, it, it probably couldn't probably do it a third time. And I think that was the most intense time. But I'm yeah, very happy that we end up where we are today. I think it's a very interesting story about the Luminova transformation from an agency to a B2B SaaS business. And I mean, even in the CDTM context, uh, during our MPD sessions, managing product development, as CDTM students know it, the students are so afraid of the word pivot. And I can imagine how frightening this word can be in the real startup context. But I wanted to ask you now, looking retrospectively at these two first years of the Luminova's life, are you grateful for that time? Was it like a big learning for you? Or do you think right now, or oh, we could have been further now if we hadn't do the agency stuff in the beginning? Yeah, that's definitely a question I've asked myself a couple of times. What if we would have started this earlier? But in hindsight, as you said, I'm very glad for the time because it allowed us to learn what it means to be a manager. It taught us what it means to be bootstrapped and to really look like understand where money comes from, how to spend the money. I think it's a point where to kind of unlearn a little bit to not just look after every penny, but also start investing sensibly. It really formed us as entrepreneurs to a way that we could then also build the company. We do it right now. And by that, I think um, I'm very grateful for it. Maybe we could have been a half a year earlier, but not two years earlier.
Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really valuable insight. And just to do a little pivot of our own on this podcast to talk about fundraising, I really think it's important to acknowledge and also celebrate that you just raised your seed round with a very impressive fundraising, which congratulations again for that. Julia and I both found that really, really impressive. What was the most difficult part during that whole process? And what would you recommend to other founders who are fundraising, particularly in the current market situation? So I think this also has been said on many different po other podcasts, but I think if you have been fundraising over the last, I don't know, two years, even four years, or you all the stories you know about fundraising are from your friends that have raised in this period, just don't expect the, it to be exactly the same. So the environment has gone to a not more normality, expect things to take a lot longer. And, and also don't expect these crazy hypes and super quick rounds and shallow due diligences where people don't even really look exactly on what you're doing. But yeah, I think which is actually how it's probably supposed to be, right? That you really have the chance to get to know the investors and if they understand your business. But that's my biggest advice of founders, don't just think that it's going to be a very quick round and fast and really know your business, know your market, know the answers to the most important questions. And I think the other thing is to really focus on efficiency when it comes to your metrics, not just stupid, pure growth. I think before it was growth in, in like bull markets is growth over everything. And I think in bear markets, efficient growth is like the currency of the hour. So I think if you can showcase like how effect like how you can invest more money here to efficiently grow to the next level then i think that's very very soft thoughtful impressive and also knowing if you have a round i think in the up markets it's really yeah this is all this around we're going to raise and we're going to invest 30 percent in r d 30 percent in go to market that was often enough but i think by now it's really people want to understand why you think that what exactly you want to spend your money on how is this going to impact the most important metrics this is something you should have in place. And I think for us, looking back, it was understanding that we went into the process before the whole crash or like the whole situation in Ukraine kind of had an impact on the public markets. And then seeing like how different investors are reacting to this environment where some are, were in complete shock, like standstill, didn't do any deals. Some were just like slowing down their processes. Some were just like shifting the focus in the due diligence. So I think that was for us sailing through that storm while not having that many reference points, how to navigate it was definitely the most challenging part. You also raised your round in harsh times, I would say in the current market situation. And I'm sure it was a challenging way, but was there any challenge that you were not prepared for? I think the one moment that... I wasn't really prepared for that was the thinking what can go wrong in customer reference calls. So when you sometimes in the due diligence, some investors will ask you to make reference calls with your customers. And of course, your natural pick would be pick customers where you know they love you. They would talk great things about you. Then my intention was also, hey, I'm not going to brief them at all because you don't want to tamper with the evidence. I think if it comes out that you brief them, this could be a complete disaster. So take the ones that like you and don't brief them. But what comes out is that what some the investors really want to hear from these reference calls is basically that you are at the point where your sales machine works like a cookie cutter, where 
the customer might not even like you. They might not even wanted to work with you, but they had to work with you because they compared the competition with you and your product was by far the best. And yes, I had to work with Luminovo. And of course, this is not exactly the opposite that one of your beloved early customers would tell you. Oh, they, they're so great. Their customer service is so great. They're so responsive. They are almost do building all the features that I wanted. Yeah. And what the, what the investor hears is not scalable. And I think that was something that in hindsight makes a lot of sense, but I have not foreseen when picking those customer references. I think that's a really interesting insight that makes a lot of sense now that I think about it, but it's also definitely not immediately obvious, at least to me. Speaking of investors, you've mentioned previously that you shouldn't overestimate the investor's knowledge and expertise in AI solutions. Do you see this necessarily as a problem? How do you handle matching investors' AI knowledge with your own expertise? I think it would even take it broader on from AI knowledge to just domain expertise. And I think my biggest learning there is just that it's easy to say, hey, I looked into the space, I looked into this market. And then of course, when you take this just as a precedence for going very deep and hey, now you can talk to an investor like you can talk to a customer, then you might, even if they did their due diligence very well before, you might will still lose them because it's still like a completely different level of having looked into the space versus like working in that space. And little investors have ever not invested in a company because the initial pitch of the founder was too, sh too shallow. What, what it will trigger if it's for them is too shallow and not like detailed enough, they will ask you questions. But of course, if you know your stuff, you have the perfect answer. But I think a lot of deals haven't been done because the founders were explaining their stuff on an expert level too complex and the investors figured, okay, that's not one for me. I don't understand. So I think that's one of the, even if you if you feel it's an uncomfortable situation, if they sit in the call and they say, I understood, please go on, please go on. Then that's still a million times better than them just being completely silent because they you lost them 30 seconds ago. So you wouldn't say that investors should be AI experts to be on the call with founders. The question is what an expert really means. I think if you talk to a researcher, they know they tell you the experts are the ones that are reading the most advanced papers. And I think then if you look who calls themselves experts, it's mostly people that can bring it into the business context. I think if you're willing to invest in AI, I think it's important that you know what can make or break a specific business model and which questions to answer. I think it's not necessary that you go into the intricate details, understand how kind of they train their models or anything like that, but really understand what can make and break such an organization. And these questions you should at the back or have on the back of your sleeve, but you don't have to be a full-blown expert. Therefore, you can always rely on your other portfolio companies that have a true like deep down techie that can do a like tech due diligence for you. But I think that's not the best way probably to spend your time as an investor. We also want to move forward in our podcast and speak a bit more about your leadership and entrepreneurship experience within Luminovo. And I wanted to say that Luminovo is basically your first full-time job and it is directly in the highest position possible. And in this regard, I wanted to ask you, what was the biggest challenge to become not only the first-time founder, but also a first-time leader for you? It definitely helps you if you're like a person that has in general always happy to organize things, bring people together, 
and rally them around you. Because in the beginning, if you're a first-time founder, you have no track record to show. And in our case, we didn't even like have that great of an idea. But you have to kind of make people believe that they want to be on a team with you and work with you and achieve goals together. And I think often this attitude is probably found in like, you know, team captains in sports or, and I think that was for me definitely one of the biggest asset to realize that this is an asset and that's something you have to, you have to bring to the table to even get someone to willing to work with you. And I think the other biggest challenge was that in that early situation, you kind of, you're probably constantly insecure, right? Because you feel, wow, okay, these people probably, if they know, if they realize I don't know X, Y, Z, they probably will lose my trust and they will leave the company. And in the beginning, I think it's like this over-controlling thought in the head that you have to know it all. You have to be the smartest person in sales, the smartest person in tech and whatever, but this of course can't scale and this doesn't work. And then slowly building up that realization that, oh, here, I was not the smartest person in the room that's perfect and here it wasn't and then it coming even going full circle and realizing i think that's also famous quotes i think from steve jobs that you in theory people should come onto the team because you don't tell them what to do but they tell you what to do because otherwise you are bounding what the team can achieve by your probably very limited knowledge and i think going that full circle from really like knowing what can bring people on a team first living through these anxieties and then letting them go was, I think, the, the biggest challenge. That's a very honest and refreshing take on being a founder. And I know that a lot of people at CBTM aspire towards founding a company. So in sort of the same vein of questions, what's the best part of being a founder and what's the worst part? I think the, the best part of being a founder is definitely that you can't blame anyone for a work environment that you don't like. And on the, on the other side, you can create an work environment that you like to work in. And I think there are just no excuses for not making it great, right? If you want to decide that you want to build a remote first company, you can do it. If you want to change your vacation policy, you can do it. And if you want to, whatever, change how people should hold meetings, you can do it. I think that's the best part that there's like the, this creativity that you can bring to the table of designing a place that works for you, but even more, I think the more rewarding part is creating a place to work for people that they really love and like to go to work with every day. And that's, I think, like the best part. It's also when, when Timo and I talked about it, right? You can always fail on a company level and be like none of our monetary dreams or impact dreams would manifest, but no one can take you away from you. It's like having had a great time and learning a lot. And if you create an environment like that, then I think everything else is basically just the cherry on the cake. I think the worst thing is definitely that it's basically your baby, right? And it's always with you. It's like very hard to really switch off. And because there's so many clues in this world that will always probably prime you on a topic that you had at work. I think that's one of the biggest struggles I have to really disconnect from work from times to really fresh up your mind. And I think what you also have to learn is as a founder, if you're progressing with the organization and you will have less and less to do with a specific vertical, so you're not going to work in sales anymore in tech, but you work on more cross department topics, which means that often the topics that see the light of day for you are always escalation topics. They're always the things that go wrong and you kind of have to like fix it. And unfortunately, very often it's also people topics. And I think that's also where I lost the most nights of sleep off is definitely not just about will this customer sign, 
but will this person resign? Can we make this career change? Or what do we do about this? And because as, long as, as soon as people are involved, it's of course a very different ball game. And that's definitely a thing that you have to carry with every day. I think it's great that you so genuinely care about people who are working with you on Luminovo. But on the other side, I think it's also very important to disconnect. Do you have any advice or any methodology of your own, how you switch off from work just to refresh and rewind? The best process I probably have is whatever I want to do with a switched off mindset, I do it early in the morning. So I think often for me, it's like tough to like actively decide to stop working or switching off to do sports or to read. So that's why this is stuff I normally do in the morning. I think that's for me kind of this habit chaining to know, okay, once you get up in the morning, you do this and then work doesn't really like even get to your head before you start working on it. I think that's my, my best habit. And normally this like a lot of People, of course, meditate and stuff like that, but I've never gotten gotten too much into it. I probably should, but that's my go-to solution. There is a great uh, CDTM meditation course, which lasts for the whole weekend. So maybe you can <laughs> catch up on that. Maybe you can take, take up on that, yeah. And going back to what you were saying about the best part of being a founder in terms of the people you're working with, in a recent video about Luminovo, you said that one of the greatest achievements of Luminovo is the culture that you built. Could you go a little deeper into that and also describe the culture at Luminovo? One of the claims that we have is that we want to put people first and build great things. And that's basically on each of those two buckets. We have kind of three operating principles and building great things is, I think that's like very, very common that you want to focus on impact. You want to be proactive and learn a lot. And most proud of is this very open trust culture that we've built where really these concepts of psychological safety that a lot of people have read upon, that you can really bring your full self to work. You can take interpersonal risks, be completely open on your personal challenges. But also if you have critical feedback to someone else, if you disagree with a certain idea without ever thinking about organizational consequences, the only thing you should worry about is an opinion that I truly believe in. And I think that is valid to the project and then you should just go about it. And also if there's a yeah, personal situation that's maybe itching you and you have a feedback that you want to give someone and you realize that you are talking about someone else and about something you haven't told that person that you should, the first thing you should do is to go to that other person and just tell them straight to their face. And I think that openness and tra transparency and trust culture is something that I hold very dear. Also the part that we try to be very non-hierarchical. And for example, Timon, I don't carry a C title because I think we're way too small of a company of being achieved of anything. And I think it often just creates wrong entitlement. We try to yeah, set very flat hierarchies and people have like one-on-ones with each other, but also skip one-on-ones can have sessions with everyone in the company. So that really, I think, makes us a very like open place for people to quickly just feel comfortable and ideally then have an environment where they can do their best work. I think you also mentioned that Luminovo is a remote first company and speaking about the values that you've mentioned, being transparent, being non-hierarchical, is it a challenge for you to also live up to these values in the remote context? I think some... Aspects of it are, of course, a little bit more challenging, right? Because some parts of trust and bonding, it happens in the physical world, right? You can replace a lot of things, but some 
physical interactions, of course, help. And it's something we realize when you do the kickoff at CDTM and all these games connected to it. So that's why we try to have like offsites where people also can bond physically. But I think some of the things have been probably even more crisp because we were forced to write them down. In written language, we can be a lot more concise. And I think that was definitely a challenge that we knew we had when this happened. But I felt that it helped us even more to reflect on what it really means to have this operating principle for case X, Y, Z, and also allow other people who are maybe not as outspoken in front of crowded environments to, to participate and comment. I think that helped us to become even more inclusive, which is, of course, also something that we want to promote. You, of course, lose some of these interactions on a high frequency, but you can replicate it, but you're gaining a lot by switching to a remote-friendly mode of communication. Speaking about the future of Liminova, I mean, now after securing such an amazing round of your seed financing, I'm sure you also have a big vision and a big mission that we talked about in the intro. We at CDTM also love to hear about B-hacks <laughs> that many, many startups at CDTM have. B-hacks for our listeners is a big, hairy, audacious goal. So what is the B-hack of Luminovo? So the B-hack of Luminovo is that until 2025 or 2027, then if you extend it a little bit, what do you have when I have touched 1 million new electronic products with our software? And a touch point basically means that if I walk down the street and there's a new, maybe like a new screen that's showing me when the tram is coming. And I know that at some parts of the value chain, our software helped either design the screen or help people decide on who to manufacture the screen, supply the parts for that screen. One touch point basically helps us count this project as one. And if we've achieved to touch 1 million of these different products, then I think we have done a very, very big share on accelerating technological progress and ideally bring even more innovations to life. So that would be our BHAC. And as we've spoken earlier about your international experiences in the US, do you plan on international expansion of Luminovo outside of Europe at any point? Yeah, so as you pointed out, so we've already started to go across Europe because for us, this initial market segment we're targeting is it's a lot easier for us to scale to another geography than just expanding the specialization of these different players. And we already have inbound leads and by now customers from North America, Southeast Asia. It's definitely clear that for us to become the horizontal dominating platform that we, of course, aspire to build, we have to be, become global at some point. So I think definitely North America and then of course also the, the Asian continent is something that we, where we already have customers and partners in, but we're also trying to sell more into starting in mid of next year. I also wanted to touch upon the supply chain crisis in electronics. I mean, the core business of, of Luminovo lies within the electronics manufacturing. And I was just curious how this current crisis affects Luminovo and its business, whether it's beneficial for you. How do you see that? Originally, the supply chain crisis was definitely like an accelerator for us because I think the biggest obstacle in sales we currently have is that people don't feel like the urgency or the, originally don't felt the urgency of, of switching from the Excel or based or legacy software based processes to something more modern. And that, of course, was evaporated through the supply chain crisis because before they were just like working with outdated manual data 
which was fine, right? If the data is only changing every now and then, but if you have a supply chain crisis where data points about availability prices change in the matters of seconds, and if you are not working on an automated digital solution, then you're just falling behind. So I think that was really the shock in the supply chain that really made people realize real-time supply chain data, that's the future. And that's something we have to invest in and gave us even more of a reason to exist or to go about the go-to-market like we went about it. And I think that even though if, if this crisis will go away, I think that trend of um, aspiring real-time information won't be. So I think for us, it was definitely an accelerator, but it's also now the crisis is here to an extent that it's also a blocker because some people are so overwhelmed with it that when they look at a new software solution, they're normally remembering the last big software piece they bought. And that in our case, it's often an ERP system. And integrating an ERP system often takes three months of a consulting service, 12 months of integration. And then they hear software project and they're thinking that we are going to be a similar beast. So even though they have the issue and they're drowning in it, you have the solution to it. They have a very twisted view on how quickly you can really deliver value for them. And that's why if they would have a little bit of less of a crisis, they probably would have more bandwidth to listen to us, why it's going to be a, a very quick return on invest for them or in time to value. I can see how the extent of the crisis would make people skittish about installing a new software solution. And of course, no one can see the future, but if you had to guess, how do you think the supply chain crisis within the electronics market will evolve? There are different reasons why this crisis um, had happened in the first place. And I think it's definitely there's an, a huge spike in demand and that was a little bit unpredictable, unforeseen. There was like additional sh shutdown in the supply due to the COVID crisis. And I think what by now we have like a better understanding where the demand will go. This kind of COVID shock is over and we've like settled on a and a new upward new normal and a slope that can continue to sustain in the future. But what, of course, what can't ramp as quickly is chip factories. That's a big issue that we see here, right? And probably some other disciplines where you could just build a new factory in a few months, but building a chip factory, ramping it up to a production yield that's somehow sustainable takes you years and billions of dollars. And we have these all these cool chip acts that are currently been passed. And I think there's a lot of investment going into Europe and North America and building new factories and our fabs. But this will take until they really, they can really have an impact on this crisis will be another three to four years. So I think this COVID shock is over now, but I think it will be a tense situation until this extra capacity is fully ramped. It won't be as, an issue, as much of an issue as we have right now, but I think until then we won't see a complete ease up of the market. That's at least my expectation. Great. And I think also Sebastian is the perfect person in this podcast to talk about the outlook of the AI and AI-based industries. I wanted to, to decide what one of your sentences that you said in 2018. You said that AI is still new in Germany, was back in the days. And that was the time when Lumino was still a consulting model. What has changed since then? The new part was there on many different fronts. I think, first of all, it really depends on how you def define AI. And I think people are these days like really setting an equality sign between AI and, and deep learning. And I think the core concept of using neural networks to solve data problems, that is something that was one, the reason for us to exist, but also what caused this new hype of 
AI in the days. And I think by now, one, the university curriculum at, at TUM, for example, is, is almost on par with like what Stanford has to offer. Even the one professor that was at the time when we were at Stanford still working there as an assistant professor is now one of the AI professors here at TUM. So I think there the playing field has leveled a lot, including great online resources that are there. So I think by now it really doesn't matter where you at, but everyone could have access to world-class AI education. So I think by that, Germany, like all the other companies have caught up. Additionally, what has definitely changed is like the tool chain that is available. At the time, it was still a little bit more of a, a dark science that how you can really get these models to run and how you can ship them into production. And by now, you have machine learning operations, ML ops, like as a whole discipline that helps you connect and glue together this whole stack of how you bring a model from idea to production. And that has definitely has completely changed the game of how many of these innovations really come out of the lab and really see actual user value. And as well, there are like great other initiatives in Germany from like TU, for example, the Applied AI initiative, which was founded at a similar time that I think has grown immensely within the Unternehmertum ecosystem. And has also, I think, definitely left a big mark on the Munich, but also the whole German AI ecosystem. Yeah, I think that ties in really nicely with something you said a few years ago, which is a quote that I found really interesting, which is that Germany's innovation power doesn't have to hide in the shadows of Silicon Valley. Uh, do you mind expanding further on your thoughts on the current state of innovation in Germany and its position against Silicon Valley? I feel that now we can also in our universities, specifically also in Munich, pump out very great talent. So I think that one having the talent, but also being able to educate them to the fullest degree. I think we've like caught up very much on the education front. And the other thing, when you talk about innovation in the context of startups, it's to totally about capital. And I think there we've seen there's has been a lot more venture capital in the, in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. One, because of the funds that are there, but also about the angel community. So successful founders who have like gotten their first returns and are now reinvesting into the ecosystem. And I think there, Berlin, but also like Munich now, the ecosystem has gone a long way where you now have these first-time founders that have made their first box of reinvesting into the ecosystem. Generally, the influx of venture capital into Europe has been like blossoming over the last years. And that's, I think, is a great basis for us to really make use of the talent that we have. And when it comes to the opportunities, I really think that, yes, the B2C game is probably one in the US or by now a lot more in, in China. But when it comes to B2B, really the industries that make our like GDP strong here in Europe, being it automotive, but also mechanical engineering, energy, medical devices, I think there's still a lot of gaps to fill. And I think that's the biggest opportunity we have in, in Europe to really make use of the resources we have and combine it with modern technologies. And speaking more about the applicability of AI, I think people who are not that familiar, not that deep into AI topics cannot really grasp how helpful it can be. I'm not an, an AI expert. And I also would be curious to hear from you, what are the industries and areas that can still benefit from AI solutions? And how do you think stakeholders and business should think about applying AI into their applications? I think the main learning that I had during these uh, consulting workshops with a lot of different companies is that it's, P 
people are often just using AI as a basically a buzzword to sell their solutions. And I think mainly it's important that you really think AI as a tool in the toolbox. And there are some problems that you can solve with AI better than you can do with classic programming. And sometimes they even only making some use cases possible. And I think you should really either focus on these points and really just never just use it for the sake of using AI. So basically what means that what start things that I can still benefit from it, I think leading towards what's possible now that maybe hasn't been possible before. And I think AI has matured a lot when it comes to like pattern recognition. So for example, in, in visual recognition, there it has been very much going mainstream already. But I think the areas where AI has moved the most in the in the last maybe years or months is when it comes to generative modeling. That means on a text and image basis, basically the system not just looking at something and classifying something or putting a number out, regressing to something, but like generating text, generating images. And I think that's also what you see currently taking the internet by storm is all these yeah images that are created by Dali 2 and these kind of topics. So I think everything that's in this kind of creative and generative space, that's where a technology has really made a leapfrog, where I think now there's different things that can happen on that front. And I think the other big part is when you think about topics like biology, where we had this huge breakthrough of DeepMind with their alpha fold model, that was basically the first model that solved this challenge of protein folding, which can now help us understand drug discovery on a completely new level because we can do a lot more things like in silico so basically in the computer before we really move into the lab and i think that can spark a whole new level of innovation on the bioinformatics front so i would say these are like just two example breakthroughs that i think can really impacting industries where ai can really still help them make significant leaps forward Thank you so much. And I think with that, we can move over to the toolbox. So just sort of a lightning round of questions. First question, what is a book that you think everyone should read? So one book I really recommend everyone should read is The Feelers Organization by Amy Edmondson. And that talks about this concept of psychological safety that we hold very dear at Luminovo. And I think it's interesting for everyone to just look into it and see how much of that they can apply in their own workplace if they have the chance to do so. Great. Next one. What is the app that everyone should download? At Luminovo and uh, most personally, I use Notion a lot, which is in a sense a yeah, wiki tool that kind of helps you to also to connect to different other services, create interesting databases and organize your work life. And I think yeah, in your personal and professional life, I think this can help you a lot. Thank you. And aside from Mostly Awesome, of course, what is a podcast everyone should listen to? I got into the All In podcast, which is like a bunch of like venture capitalists and uh, yeah, from, from the US, from the Valley. And I think there's, of course, very much like VC lingo, but they also have very interesting points on American politics and geopolitics. So that's, I think, something I love listening to. You also touched upon the morning routine today. What is the routine that everyone should follow? So for me, the one routine that I always get into is the sports in the morning, because I really feel talking about habit chaining. If this is something that you struggle to doing, then ideally just doing it right after your bell goes off, directly going sports. That has been the way for me to kind of get a, get a sports routine. Thank you. Who is an innovator everyone should know? 
going for something more exotic here, um, I would mention Andre Carpathy, which was a professor at the time when we were still in Stanford teaching the computer vision class with deep learning and has recent, until recently been the chief scientific officer at Tesla, driving the whole autonomous driving program. And if you ever want to understand a little bit how like these real world AI systems get trained, how they work with data from the field, I would highly recommend you to look into some of the videos and lectures that he recorded. Great. Thank you a lot for the answers, Sebastian, and thank you for your time. I hope our listeners also had a great time listening to all the stories and your ideas and in perspective on AI, on Luminovo, and on the future of the industry. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork, together with Annabelle Schaefer, Chris Schnabel, Yulia Kosovskaya, and Jacqueline Hoffsmith. If you like our podcast and would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.